We have come as far as Paul standing before Felix in Caesarea. He had come to Jerusalem, if you remember, for Pentecost. James wanted to try making peace. He said there were thousands of Jews that had come to the faith, but they held to their Jewish ways by and large. And he said, there's trouble because the unbelieving Jews are accusing you of turning people away from Moses. And the believing Jews are wondering where you are, you know, telling people they don't have to do this and don't have to do that. So James, the Lord's half-brother, said, why don't you go up in the temple? There's these guys that have made this uh, promise to the Lord. They've, making a, they've made a vow, and to end that vow, there's a sacrifice that's necessary, fairly expensive. So why don't you go up and pay for the vow to show that you're still in support of the traditions and so forth? So when Paul went up, there were certain Jews from Asia that saw him, Ephesus and other places, and they accused him of bringing a Gentile, probably Trophimus, into the temple courts, and it started a riot. And then the legionnaire had to come, Lysias, and rescue him, and thought he was an Egyptian rebel, and then when he heard him speak Greek, realized something else was going on, brought him in, you know, he began to speak to the crowd in Hebrew, they all settled down until he talked about the Gentiles, they freaked out again. So Lysias said to the centurion, scourge him, find out what the story is, and when he began to bind him, he said, the centurion, you sure you want to do this? I'm a Roman citizen. The centurion freaked out, goes to Lysias and says to the legion, you know, this guy is a, a Roman citizen. We can't do this. The Chiliarch calls him in then. He says, he finds out he, he shouldn't have even been chained previous to that. So his nephew comes to him in Jerusalem and says, Uncle Paul, these guys are, us 40 of them. They're taking a vow. They're not going to eat until they kill you. So you have to be careful. So when Lysias gets word of that, he sends him off with 470 armed uh, soldiers, and uh, the, finally the 70 cavalrymen finish the journey with him and bring him to Caesarea, where he is at this point. The Jews came up from Jerusalem, they hired a professional, they're accusing him of all kinds of things, and Felix finally hands the floor to Paul, and Paul says, you know, none of these accusations are, are let, let them prove it, let, that they're founded. I mean, you know, I came up to worship, bring an offering to the church. I came up to worship on the feast. He said, I'm not against Moses and so forth. And he said, the riot, the, the, what they're holding me in question of here is the resurrection. I, I follow the law and the prophets, I'm orthodox. All Pharisees believe in the resurrection. So he's brought us to that point. Now, where we are here, we're up in Caesarea, right there. Caesarea there, from Jerusalem, all the way to Caesarea. Um, this is the provincial capital, a remarkable place. You want to throw up one of the other ones here? 
Okay. You can see here that's the theater that they've uncovered. And then down here is where the palace is. And see that large structure in the middle? You're going to put up the green around there. See that? Where that green is, that's the, the swimming pool in the middle of the palace with all these colonnades. It's over 115 feet long and over 60 foot wide. If you can imagine that, and it's filled with fresh water that they brought in in aqueducts. And built all around that is Herod's palace there. And uh, that's where they're keeping Paul at this point in time. Uh, they have him there, evidently not changed, not chained. He's under house arrest, and he's been called to give testimony now in court. Now look, as we go into this more and more in these next few chapters, I'm reading some different scholars, but I thought this, this one was great. It's called, it was a short article called A Physician Writes History, and it's the long disputed details that Luke gives to us. It says, who is the most, this is a professor talking to his class, who is the most read historian of the ancient world? The learned professor asked his class, Tactius perhaps, Pseudonymous uh, perhaps, Herodotus, all wrong, he's afraid. The most read and probably most reliable recorder of ancient history was a man known as Luke, the probable author of the third gospel of the New Testament and its sequel, the book of Acts. Sir William Ramsey, of the late 19th century archaeologist, started out his career convinced that the Acts of the Apostles had been produced in the middle of the second century, a hundred years after the events purported and were described, on the basis of his archaeological discoveries, however, he was gradually compelled to reverse his views. Luke's history, he wrote, is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. And Luke is a historian of first rank who should be placed among the very greatest. Ramsey's view of Luke obviously changed. He said, for example, they said Luke mistakenly identifies Sergius Paulus, if you remember in Cyprus, as proconsul of Cyprus. A bad guess, they said. Cyprus was governed by an imperial legate, not a proconsul. Then, in 1889, Ramsey noted, an inscription found in Soli in Sirius, uh, Cyprus referred to the proconsulship of Paulus. In another page, Luke calls the authorities in Thessalonica politarchs. Another bad guess, said the critics, there was no such thing as a politarchy. Then, in the 20th century, Thessalonian coins were found bearing the inscription politarch. You get the idea. So picturesque were Luke's portrayals of the cities of Asia Minor that some critics accused him of crippling from an ancient travel brochure. Likewise, his descriptions of Paul's trials show an astonishing familiarity with Roman legal procedure. Luke himself acknowledges in the prologue to his gospel his attention to accuracy and detail. I have followed all things carefully from the beginning, he writes, and so apparently he did. 
One thing, however, Luke did not record, notably what became of himself after he reached Rome. The last reference to Luke comes from Paul, who under arrest in Rome writes, Only Luke is with me, 2 Timothy 4.11. His Acts of the Apostles have ended in mid-story. A late 2nd century account asserts that Luke, filled with the Holy Ghost, died at the age of 74 in Bithynia, the Roman province south of the Black Sea. So interesting to hear the, this professor tell his class the most accurate and, and in his position, best writer of ancient history is Luke the physician because of the details and so forth he gives. So as we head into these trials, you have to realize this is more accurate history than you're going to get from your history professor who's a, you know, some type of a skeptic or something. Here we have the details given to us. Paul is standing before Felix at this point in time. And he says, I'm called into account in regards to the resurrection in verse 21. So chapter 24, verse 22 says then, and when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of that way, Christianity, he deferred them and said, when Lysias, the chief captain, the Chiliarch, over a thousand, shall come down the tribune, I will know the uttermost of your matter. So now we run into Felix's perspective here. Felix is a procrastinator to his destruction. You know, he is a very interesting picture here. It says Felix has a more perfect knowledge of Christianity. Um, the word is accurate. It says that, um, that Apollos was instructed in a more perfect way, Ananias and Sapphira, that they instructed him more perfectly. That's the idea here. And Felix is in a troubled region. He's in trouble all the time because of how harsh he is. He's the only person, pro-counsel, who purchased his way into the position because his older brother, Paulus, had favor with Caesar. And him and his brother grew up with uh, the, the Caesar of the time. And they were gained, they gained position and freedom then. But historians said that Felix ruled with the might of a king and the mind of a slave. And he was cruel. So when it comes to this point in time, he wants to find out. His wife is Drusilla. She's a Jew. He wants to make peace if he can. So Paul says, I'm glad to be addressing you because I know you have a more perfect knowledge. With tens of thousands of believers, with a strong Jewish community in Caesarea itself, he wants to understand. It doesn't have some of the stigma born again has today called the way. And he wants to see. So we have this meeting here. Important for us to see. There are two kings involved. Caesar is one of them. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the other one. They each have a messenger here. Caesar has sent Felix to Caesarea. And the Lord Jesus has sent Paul to Caesarea. 
And we have the great apostle in Rome face to face in this scene. And Felix is being carefully as a Roman citizen, so he says he deferred, it was against Roman law, to receive testimony against someone unless the eyewitness testimony was there and Lysias was not there. So we, we get introduced into this world, very remarkable. It says that he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty that he should not forbid him, any of his acquaintances, to come and minister to him. So Paul now, it tells us down in verse 27, ends up in Caesarea for two years, if you can imagine. He is there for two years. Um, the Lord appeared to him in chapter 23, verse 11, said, you're going to Rome. No doubt he didn't expect to go this way. And though while he's there in Caesarea, in that palace out there on that that looks like a peninsula here, and understand that was built by the Romans. The Romans had stonemasons who had discovered how to pour concrete under water and have it cure in salt water. And they built that out with these huge foundation poured in the Mediterranean Sea underwater and built up on that remarkable to read about what they did. So Paul is out staying there. Uh, you want to put up the other one? And then here's the, here, out here is the peninsula we were just looking at. It's out there. There's the theater that was uncovered. And it's in that theater right in the middle is the judgment seat where Felix and Agrippa and uh, Bernice and Drusilla are going to sit there and listen to Paul. Right here is the Hippodrome where they raced horses and so forth. And if you go to Israel with us next year, we will have a Bible study right here in the Hippodrome. Right there. They've uncovered some of the seats, so there's seating there. And we have a little PA system. We have a Bible study right in the Hippodrome. I hope that tempts you that you're thinking about going. Uh, so this amazing scene here develops. Now, Paul, two years, um, he could write. Uh, he could have visitors. No doubt Luke was going back and forth from Jerusalem and Judah to there, putting together his writing for the book of Acts, but also for his gospel, interviewing many of them that had been personal disciples of the Lord. Um, Cornelius, probably, who had, you know, the fellowship in his home there. Uh, Philip in the area, no doubt they came, they visited with him. And look, it's beautiful. It's not like, you know, Paul's used to getting beaten. He's used to being stoned and thrown out. You, you read some of the things he, he went through. Now he's got two years to chill. He's bound, it seems house arrest. We, we don't get the impression when we studied that you were allowed to chain a Roman citizen that wasn't guilty. So he's under house arrest. He can move around, there's a pool there, he can exercise, his friends are bringing him food, which is a normal process because they didn't have a chef there just for Paul, the prisoner. And uh, he has this freedom and he's, he's writing. And because he's there, you know, certainly we have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, in his imprisonment to Rome, we end up with the 
the pastoral epistles. And there are some scholars, interestingly, that feel that when Paul is in Caesarea for these two years, that he writes the book of Hebrews because his battle was with the Jewish community and the things they were accusing him of. And of course, he would never sign his name to it because they'd never read it if he signed it. But you read some of the things there, you can see the contest. And as Paul, quote unquote, if Paul writes Hebrews, it's certainly a time when sacrifices before 70 AD, when the temple's destroyed, because he talks about sacrifices, things going on in the temple. And right here, we're like 58, 59 AD, about 20 years before the temple is, no, about 10 years before the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is sacked. Paul now has this leeway there. He has liberty, and his friends and his acquaintances are able to come and communicate with him. And it says he's there, tells us down in 27, for about two years. Now, here comes Rome. After certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewish woman, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith. And we're going to find out in the next verse that when Felix hears Paul's testimony, he freaks out. He's terrified. And he says, you can go. I'll hear you at some more convenient season. No doubt John 16, it tells us, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will reprove this, the, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And it tells us that in verse 25, he reasoned with Felix of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come and terrified him. There's a testimony of the Holy Spirit that's taking place. Look, there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit that's taking place in our day. Sometimes it can be one individual with another individual. God has not yet forsaken this present world. Paul, when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, and in the beginning he says he's longing to come and to be there with them, he says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and birds and four-footed creatures and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up. God also gave them up. That was Rome. That was who he was writing the epistle to those Christians who lived in that culture. Wonderfully, as he ends, he says this to them. He says, um, and the God of peace, we need him today, don't we? The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. That's good news today, isn't it? You know, you look and you think, how can they get away with this? How can they get away with nothing? Nobody's getting away with nothing. There is a king and he's coming. He says, shortly he's going to bruise Satan under your heel. 
he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we look in this first chapter of Rome, uh, Romans and he tells them, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We see him in front of Felix talking about the gospel of Christ, faith in Christ, of righteousness, of temperance, of judgment to come. And he, and he said, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. It's, this, he had already written this down, so it kind of tells us about his attitude. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith unto faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, the idea is they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Look, the world we're in, all the insanity, it doesn't pay us all the time. You know, we, we can all have our own opinions, right? We can all choose our own sides. We all look at what's going on and we can categorize it. We all think our own opinion is so important. Certainly we're smarter than anybody else. And, uh, and yet, whatever our opinions are, you know, people, you're looking at this, you're looking at that, you're looking at that, you know, this is out on the web, this is here, this is like, it's all out there in the Ripley's, believe it or not, of the World Wide Web, you know. And, and the thing with that is, if that's where we get everything we think is going on, we do two things. We miss the truth, number one, and then we make other people who don't track that the way we track it feel like the Bible is not enough. And that concerns me. Because here it tells us the problem is this is God's eyes and God's perspective in our culture that men and women are holding down the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth. There's a testimony in nature itself. And men and women are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And it says, because they change the glory of God into something corruptible, we see that every day. Because they do that, it says, wherefore God gave them up. And one of the problem with America today, I'm convinced, is God has given us up. He's taken his hand off of us. Hasn't even had to bring judgment. All he's had to say is, all right, you don't want me to, to be in charge. You don't want to listen to my word. You don't want to hear my morality. You don't want to hear what I think about human beings loving one another. You don't want to hear what I think about how children should be raised. You want to hear what I have to say about morality. You don't want to hear any of that. Have it your way. And he just removes his hand. And we're seeing it all around us. And without a revival, we're on the downhill track at this point in time. And that's truth. That's what we need to know. That's God's word. That's the problem around us, not this detail and that detail and this person and that person, this deceiver and that deceiver, all of this stuff. Look, and understand this. I understand, you know, that there's intrigue around us, there's corruption, there's money. Um, I think there are principalities and powers behind that. The Bible tells me that. I think there are conspiracies, but that doesn't, 
What I know from the Bible is all the conspirators are going to get conspirated. They're all going to wander after the beast whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's the truth. This is what we need in the day that we live in. This is what God put to the page and has preserved for 2,000 years and given to us tonight. And what it says about Rome and America is the problem is people are holding down the truth in unrighteousness. And because they didn't want anything to do with him, he gave them up. He gave them up. Now think of the things we see today of people that are given over to all kinds of things. Well, here's a picture of representative of Rome. He, you know, it says, after certain days, now he had already put Paul off once, he deferred. After certain days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him, notice this, concerning the faith of Christ. And as he reasoned, you know what reasoning means. Paul was not accusing. He was, he was telling the truth. It wasn't in a negative sense, tearing them down. He's telling the positive truth as he reasoned of righteousness. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. It says that he reasoned with them about righteousness. Then it says about temperance. That's, and he only uses that word one other time. It's in Galatians when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. That's our word there. And it means self-control. Uh, look, in the culture, Felix knew this. Uh, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, the Stoics, even Philo, the Hellenistic rabbi, said self-control is central and essential to anybody having a true spiritual experience. So Paul reasons with him about righteousness. And then in light of that righteousness, that defines what self-control is because you have to behave yourself relative to the righteousness he's describing. And then he puts all that in the context, it says here, of judgment to come. Sadly, there are major parts of the church today that are not talking about the fact that there's something coming. There's someone coming. There's something ahead of us as Christians. Time is going to stop. History, the way we know it, is going to change. Paul has already written the Thessalonian epistles, and he says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who sleep that have died. Because if we believe that Jesus died, or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I mean, he's going to descend, and those who have died before us, he's going to bring them with him. Then we which are alive shall be caught up to meet them in the air. We which are alive, he says, be caught up to meet them. So shall we, Paul says, ever be with the Lord. And here, when he talks about righteousness, no doubt he's saying that can't happen. Faith in Christ is necessary because people are sinful. He reasons then about self-control. 
That, that can't be the basis of our salvation. It's what the Holy Spirit certainly wants to do in our lives. But our righteousness is imputed. It's not earned. And that's very important because there is a judgment that is coming. When, when the Lord descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, we get raptured. Well, I can't believe he could really forgive me. Well, then you can't believe you're going to defy gravity either. You know, you have some kind of Protestant purgatory where bad Christians stay behind, but good Christians get raptured. Are you kidding me? The only thing that could take a human body and transform it in the twinkling of an eye so that it defies gravity and is caught up into the heavens is miraculous. Nobody can earn that. Nobody can get lighter by behaving. This is all by faith. And he says in that context, he says it in relative to a judgment to come. Look, Felix trembled. Literally, he was terrified. And he answered, uh, all right, take a break. Go thy way for this time. And when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. The procrastinator, Felix, again. Felix is on his third wife, Drusilla, at this point in time. His second wife had been the daughter of Anthony and Cleopatra, which gave him some clout in Rome. And now he's married to Drusilla, who's 16 years old at this point in time. Her father, Agrippa I, tried to marry her off at 12, and for some reason the recipient backed out. Then he married her to a prince in Syria when she was 14. And then somehow Felix comes across her path and sees her. Josephus tells us of all the women in that part of the world, Drusilla was the most beautiful. So it says here that he comes with his wife, that is, in adultery. Now imagine somebody in political power stealing somebody else's wife. I mean, it's unthinkable. We've never heard of anything like that before. And these are people who are holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Drusilla, the daughter of Agrippa I, the third daughter of Agrippa I, who put James to death, remember James and John, and would have put Peter to death, but when he spoke, he touched God's glory, got eaten alive of worms. Her great uncle, Herod Antipas, had killed John the Baptist, and her grandfather, Herod the Great, had killed the innocents in Jerusalem. So she's of good stock here, this girl Drusilla. And she has some Jewish, evidently from her mother's side, in her system. And she's already familiar with this way, this around the Nazarene, this new Christian thing that is sweeping people into the kingdom. And God has sent his messenger to Rome. Rome has sent their messenger to Caesarea. And Rome and truth stand face to face here as Rome and truth will stand face to face in our day as well.
And when those who hold down the truth and unrighteousness hear truth, they tremble. They're terrified. You know, Jesus said, sanctify them, speaking about us by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Not your word is true. Thy word is truth itself. Not all the stuff that flies around out there in the media. Thy word is truth. And as he reasoned with them, they're living in adultery. The third wife for Felix uh, Drusilla left her husband and let Felix steal her, and she's there. Uh, it says he came with his wife. Yeah, his wife, but she's also married to somebody else. And it says he reasons with them about righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Then it says Felix trembled, and he answered, Well, go your way for this time, and when I have a convenient <laughs> season... I will call for thee. That convenient season never comes. Within a year, Portius Festus comes and he takes that local jurisdiction from Felix because Felix started a riot and the Jews were complaining to, at that point, Nero. Claudius had passed off the scene, who he was friends with when he was a boy. Nero's taken the throne. He's been, he's been Caesar for about five years at this point in time. And the only reason when he gets Felix back to Rome that he doesn't kill Felix is because his older brother, Pallas, is still one of Nero's major counselors, and he trusts him completely. So Felix will then be, you know, sent into no man's land. Tradition says he committed suicide after he was banished. He's waiting for a convenient season. It doesn't come. Today's the acceptable day of salvation. You know, if you've got friends and relatives you're talking to, don't let them off the hook. Push them for a verdict. Make a decision. Christ could come at any minute. Drusilla, who sat there and listened, who was a Jewish, who, who was Jewish, who... who could have easily taken hold of this truth about the Messiah. She leaves. She moves to Pompeii. And her son, and, son is 20 years old. Her and her son live in Pompeii. And when Vesuvius erupts, they both turn to ashes. And they're gone. And think of the great apostles standing in front of them. Think of, think of our culture today, you know, that, that hears. And then Christianity is mocked. They hold down the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to hear a word about it. But God is able of his spirit to overcome all of these things. All of them. So you and I, here we are. We're God's messengers. There might be a lot of kooky messengers out there from the other side. But God has us here for such a time of us as this, and he expects us to share his truth. It says, so that convenient time never comes. Look at verse 26. He hoped also, this is what he wanted, that money should be given him. I never heard of a politician feeling like that. He hoped also that money should be given him of Paul that he might loose him, wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Now look, he wanted a bribe. Uh, certainly Roman officers and 
politicians who took a bribe that were dismissed immediately, but out in the provinces where it was further away, it was more easy to do these things. And he thinks, we know because Paul's testimony earlier, he said, I brought this big offering from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem. Paul is educated. No doubt Paul looks decent. He listens to him. He's intelligent. So he's under the impression, no doubt, Felix, this guy's, you know, he's got some money in the bank. So it says he comes, he communes with him more often, not to hear of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, but to get a payoff. He's playing the game. Well, all politicians play the game one degree or another. Hopefully some play the good game, some play the bad game. He communed with him the oftener, which makes him in one sense more responsible and more responsible. But after two years, Portius Festus came in to Felix's room, his jurisdiction, and Felix then, getting ready to leave, he's got to go back to Rome, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, a favor, he left Paul bound. He left Paul under jurisdiction. So he's got to go give an answer to Nero. He knows if the Jews keep screaming, so wanting to do them a favor so they might go a little easier on him, he leaves Paul bound at that point in time. Now... When Festus, Portius Festus, was come into the province, remarkable, it says, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. History tells us that he was a gracious man and a good ruler. He's only going to live two more years. He dies in 61 or 62 uh, AD. So he's only there really for about three years and then he dies. But here, as soon as he gets there, he ascends from Caesarea to Jerusalem. He wants to understand his new jurisdiction. He wants to understand the trouble. He wants to understand the Jewish leadership. He knows there's this big thing cooking that he's inherited. So he does the prudent thing. He goes up to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and they besought him and desired they continually, it's a present day, they continually, you know, they're, they're, they're working on him. They, they desired favor against him that he would send for him, Caesarea, and bring Paul to Jerusalem, laying in wait on the way to kill him. So these 40 guys who had taken a vow two years before this, that they weren't going to eat till they killed Paul, are real skinny and real miserable at this point in time. And they are not happy. And they want, you know, bring them up here, and they're planning to kill them on the way. Now, Satan is behind this. You know, Paul in these prison epistles is going to change the world. Paul's example and testimony to us is still speaking today. And here's the Jewish leadership the Jewish leadership, they just want to kill him. They're still mad. Two years has gone by. They're still angry. And you can tell Satan is behind all of this. Look, within 10 years, Jerusalem's going to be torn down and the temple's going to be burned. Within 10 years, 70 AD, it's going to start, of course, 66. But it's, it's going to take place. They're 10 years away from that. 
and they're still cursing Paul, wanting to kill him, who's bringing the gospel to them. This antagonist who's born again now. So they say, why don't you bring the guy down to us here in Jerusalem and we'll go over the, the, all the charges here. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly from Jerusalem back to Caesarea. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able to go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than 10 days, he stays in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, right there, sitting on the judgment seat, right there in the middle of the theater, after 10 days sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So it says he tarried there in Jerusalem 10 days. Interesting word. It's never used in this kind of context because it means to rub, this word, tarry. And he was there kind of rubbing, you know, kind of working over the Jewish leadership. He's kind of rubbing his way into the situation. And it says, you know, he's a politician, but he's smart. They say he had... You know, he was a good ruler. He was a gracious man. So he's working this over as best he can. Then he goes back to Caesarea after 10 days and he took a seat on the judgment seat. And when he was come, he calls Paul. The Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and they laid many and grievous complaints against Paul. Please notice which they could not prove. And Roman law would not forbid any prosecution without eyewitnesses and proof. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, yet nor against Caesar, have I offended at anything at all. I haven't done anything that they're saying here that I have done. But Festus now willing to do the Jews a pleasure. He wants to try to make peace. He answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? I'll sit in the court there. The, the Sanhedrin, the local leadership will come. But then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. A Roman judge couldn't change the location of the court unless the prisoner was a Roman citizen agreed. So he, if he says, how about we go to Jerusalem? Paul said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand at Caesar's court as a Roman citizen. Then Festus knows he can't do that. So Paul said, I'm going to stand at Caesar's judgment seat. And it sets the stage now for the rest of the book of Acts, remarkably. Nero in power about five years at this point in time. He is reasonable to a degree at this point in time. He is still under the tutorship of Seneca, who's famous, everybody knew who was there in Roman court with him, and a, a guy named Sectus uh, Afrianus Burrus. I can't believe I remember that. 
He's, so he's under tutorship there, and he's still fairly reasonable. But within five years, when Rome burns, he blames it on the Christians. Nero is a lunatic. After the first time Paul stands in front of him and gives the kind of testimony in Rome where they hold down the truth and unrighteousness and they give over the glory of an incorruptible God so that God gives them up. After Nero listens to Paul, God sends his messenger face to face to speak with the most powerful man in the world. Nero loses his mind. When Paul walks out of that and he's released, Nero goes crazy. That's when he starts to fall apart. So it's an interesting, interesting picture that's put in front of us here. So he says that. I'm, I'm going to appeal at Caesar's judgment. That's where I'm going to stand. Where I ought to be judged, Paul says. To the Jews, I haven't done any wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or if I've committed anything worthy of death, Paul says, I don't refuse to die. You know, they stoned me at Lystra as soon as I became conscious again. I went right back in to say, finish the job. You know, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've done this. I've been beaten with this many rod, with rods. I've been stripes, you know, four times. I've been through all of these things. He said, you think I'm worried? but caught up. He's written Corinthians already, caught up to the third heaven and saw things are unspeakable. He said, you think there's a threat here? If I had done something worthy of death, I'm willing to die. But he said, but at another court, if I have been an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal to Caesar, Caesarea Abolet. He makes the appeal to Caesar, which any Roman citizen could do. And, and this has been Roman law for over a century, that if you appeal to Caesar and you're a Roman citizen, you will be heard, maybe by a senator or someone first, but your, your case then will go to Rome and quite often then ultimately to whoever was Caesar at that point in time. So Festus then in verse 12, I don't think he's not really looking forward to this situation. Festus, when he had conferred with the council, now Roman history said in this council, it's not the Jews, it's not the Sanhedrin, it's his council, that it was prominent citizens and military leaders and lawyers that he sat with them, and it was always eight to 25 people in the council. Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, now Paul, however long he had to wait, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. Paul had written, you know, submit to the powers that be, the powers that be are ordained of God. Uh, he's going to be beheaded for not doing that. But at this point in time, he recognizes Rome's authority, and he makes an appeal according to their law. And we just have this incredible picture brought before us again. The world that you and I are living in. You know, here's the greatest historian of the age telling us with incredible accuracy this is the way the court system was working. 
And this was the problem in that world. They were suppressing the truth and unrighteous. They want to hear it. There was power, there was money, there was immorality, there was adultery, there was perversion, there was politics. And because they took the image of the, the glory of an incorruptible God and turn it into something else, he gave them up to all these other things. And look, we're in a culture that is giving up the glory of an incorruptible God to all kinds of other things. And God says, because you're giving that up, I'm giving you up. So certainly we're at a time, and I'm not preaching to the choir here, where we should spend more and more time praying for our nation, praying for our leaders. God cares enough about them to put Paul face to face with Felix, with Festus, with Nero. God doesn't want to see any of them perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I find that I have a bad attitude towards a lot of people on the television. Pray for me. Pray for me. And pray if there's opportunities ever for you or I to be face to face with these people that we talk to them about the faith of Jesus Christ. Not ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. That whoever they are, whoever they are, that we could talk to them about righteousness. When, when it, this is what a holy God demands. Self-control is only something can happen when you're filled with the Spirit. And there's judgment coming relative to these things. You know, years ago in um, 91, when Billy Graham did the crusade here, Jerry and I, you know, we went out, we had lunch with Cliff Barrows, and then we went out with one of the other guys that worked with him continually all around the world, putting his crusades together. And he said, there's not a political leader, a prime minister, a king, or a queen that's been alone with Billy Graham and has not asked him about Armageddon and the end of the world. Not one. Not one. And I think, you know, we certainly, sharing Christ with our loved ones, we reason about these things. The, uh, the thing that always has, there's a finale. It has to be part of that testimony. And that is, there, there is, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. You know, we don't have to be under it. That's the gospel. That's what he's telling to Felix and Drusilla. You don't have to be. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your resume is. How many husbands you've had. It doesn't matter right now you're living an adult. It doesn't matter. None of that. Here's the faith of Jesus Christ. If you'll repent, if you'll turn to him, then a righteousness you could never earn or deserve is imputed you. It's put on your account. And the Holy Spirit is given to you. So there's more self-control then through the Spirit of God. And there's something you and I are aware of that is looming on the not-too-distant horizon, right? Could happen tonight, right? Could happen before we pray. 
It happened before we sing the last song. We hope it happens before next tax season. <laughs> it could happen at any time, right? Let's bow our hearts and pray. But by, by the way, if you happen to be here this evening as an unbeliever and you have more questions, please come up. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you, give you a copy of the scripture at the end of the service. But just let's stand up and freshly commit our lives uh, to the Lord. And then as we worship, look, this last song, whatever it's going to be, the Holy Spirit speaking to Jake, he'll know. Um, let's lift our voices and our hearts. Remember the Lord challenge those who draw near to him with their lips while their hearts are far away. We don't ever want to be that way. As we, as we sing to him and as we enunciate the things we believe, we want our heart and our lips to be in concert. So let's bow our hearts. Lord, I know you've overheard. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we look to you in these things, Lord. Lord, we see the just... For me, just looking at the pictures of Caesarea, Lord. Hearing what unsaved scholars have come to conclusion about Luke and history. Realizing all of this that we looked out tonight is reality, that it happened. That in the middle of all this, Paul is remembering you appeared to him and said he was going to go to Rome. None of this could stop that journey. So Lord, tonight, let us take to ourselves those things that are so poignant that are held out on the page here. Give us our portion, Lord, if there are unbelieving relatives or friends or classmates or employers or employees that we've been speaking to, let us believe with our hearts that you have brought us face to face with them so that the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ could come to their lives, Lord. And Lord, sometimes we can hardly believe that you would let us be part of that, Lord Jesus, of eternal things, Lord. But Lord, we, we look to you, Lord. You're our shepherd, our savior. And we pray you lead us, Lord, and let these things that are historic in human history and divine, Lord, be lived out again in our generation. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. <laughs>